0: Amber Hiscott is an imaginative, award-winning glass artist. Hailing from Wales, she has an international reputation for her extensive portfolio of site-specific architectural and sculptural work in the public domain, such as the Royal Exchange Theatre Manchester, Sheffield Cathedral Lantern and Our Lady of the Taper in Cardigan. Amber's inspiration is often drawn from her experimental approach with glass, a fascination with the evolution of life, and an intimate connection with the Welsh landscape. In 2019, Amber installed the commission of four cosmic windows inspired by the work of Thomas Berry for Green Mountain Monastery in Vermont, USA. I spoke with Amber from her home in North Wales. So welcome to Thresholds, Amber Hiscott. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to
0: be here. <laughs> well, we're delighted well, yeah. to have you all the way from <laughs> North anyway. Wales, yes. And um, as I always begin, I usually ask my guests on the on the show, "Is there some story or something that you could tell us a- about your spiritual or, or religious experience growing up that maybe influenced where you are today?" And whatever it is that you take to mean by that. <laughs> Yes, gosh, that's, uh,
1: um, I didn't really have a conventional religious upbringing, um, though my mother was, my mother was actually quite a devout Christian from in the Anglican church, but my dad was probably the stronger character, and he, though he wasn't actually a, a con- self-confessed atheist, he had no time for religion when he was a young man and in his middle ages later on towards the end of their life my mum persuaded him to go to church but not when I was a kid mm-hmm. so um what was the imp- the but the big thing that impressed me was the natural world mm-hmm. I was just I saw spirit in everything I mean I was I was brought up with three brothers, two older and one younger, and we were very spread out as kids. I mean, in terms of ages, my mum had spent about 18 years having her baby spread out. So um, I, I had the pleasure of having quite a bit of time on my own, as well as having a very close family um, relationship with my brothers. And But the, we moved to, when I was seven, I moved to, well, even to go back even further, when I was three, we went on a family holiday to Devon. And afterwards, I told everybody that I'd been to heaven Hmm. because we lived in those days in London and to go to the country was so exciting. And... Um, my parents bought me some water wings and we were beside the river dart having a picnic and I just rushed to the river and jumped in and it was a swiftly flowing river and my dad yelled and my eldest brother who was 10 years older than me rushed down the river as I was bobbing down the water towards the rapids and just managed to lean out hanging onto a tree and caught me <laughs> but that was I was that kind of um a fearless kid when it came to the natural world, probably not when it came to dealing necessarily with people, but um another little story is that when I when we moved then to the edge of the Dengy Marshes when I was seven, to this very arable, beautiful. Um, English landscape with elm trees a lot there were three elm trees just in our garden and on every hedge there would be a lot of beautiful tall elm trees this was before the Dutch elm disease Mm. decimated them and I would go walking with my cat across the fields um, and I did this on one occasion, and I must have been about seven, I guess, um, and walked th- through, across two fields through a wood and out the other side into land that belonged to a man who hated to have anybody trespassing, and he immediately, from the field away, sent set his two Alsatians on me, mm. and they came racing across the field towards me, and my cat scarpered quickly, disappeared, but I just stood there with my arms open, welcoming these dogs, and I hardly, I didn't really know much about dogs. I just was so, the dogs raced towards me, and by the time the man came up to me, there was just a dog on either side, and I was just stroking it, and, and I had that kind of absolute, innate joy and connect I just felt so connected to the natural world mm. um even so that later on you know I would creep on to, I would climb onto a there was a pony in the field next door and when no one was looking I'd I tempted over to the the corner of the field and slide onto its back and ride it around the field bareback and all those kinds of I was just, uh, I was like a little nymph or spirit really of the, of the, how did I that just feel? felt I mean... something's part yeah. of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in how, uh, you experienced, as you said, you experienced spirit in everything. What did yes. that feel like?
1: Um. What that's well I used to talk to the trees and I used to talk later on I had a pony and I always talked to my pony I talked to my cat but what it felt like well it, it didn't feel like a separation I think it mm. it was before I learned to as adults I think we live in our heads so much mm. and because I was very content and happy at home and had a happy family life. I was incredibly lucky. And so I felt just when I went out into the, into the, the countryside, well, it wasn't even separate as the countryside. It was just part of, it felt like part of me really. And I felt like part of it later on. My dad bought me a pony and, um, he didn't know anything about horses. So he said, if I'm buying you this pony, you have to look after it yourself. If it needs a vet, you call it, you call the blacksmith. I don't want to know about this pony. Mm -hmm. So I would get up at crack of dawn to go riding before going to school. And it was a very naughty little pony because they bought far too young a pony for me. But, and it took years for me to really train the pony Mm. but in the end we came to such a wonderful understanding and it felt it just felt completely natural i suppose
0: did you ever later in life experience what you might call a separation or did you always carry that within you
1: um Yeah, later on I think as a teenager and then in university in Essex um, I was going to be studying fine art theory. So my first, though I'd gone to live in Wales um, and then after spending seven years in Wales and then traveling um, after school and between school and university, but actually I think in that, when I went, did go to university, I I was then living in my head. And I'm not sure that at that time, I, I think I had, I mean, in the end, I actually, though I was very capable in university, I actually en- left at the end of that year because it wasn't right for me. You know, I thought I, because I was good at, Art. I'm good at English, I thought I'd write about art, which later I did do. But at the time, I felt I needed to be doing something with my hand and my heart, rather than just my head. So I, I then ended up... I mean, I went back to, to near Swansea, Bishopston in Gower, where my mum was and she wasn't well, and so I had... The university gave me a year off. And to sort of sort of calm down and think about it and, um, and to look after my mum. And I've discovered, I went into the art college and during that time I actually was offered a ch- chance to, to be on the stained glass course, then called the architectural glass course,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which happened to be about the best course in the world of, in that medium um and when I started making my own windows and using my hands and having that this connection with my heart as well as with my mind um I realized that that's what I wanted to do and so it was in a huge ah it was a huge discovery for me
0: And then um, at some stage later you will, the glass became your main focus from the beginning. Is that right? Well,
1: from, from, yeah, from, I suppose, I I did the I took the glass course in Swansea, in Swansea College of Art, um, between 72 and 75. And I'm the kind of person that if I do something, I just absolutely... <laughs> I totally do it. I just completely pour myself into it and become absorbed by it. So, again, I worked long hours. I loved – I really loved it so much um, that, yes, that became the focus of my – the focus of my main attention. But having said that, I was living – back with my parents in Bishopston in Gower. And that is the, the most beautiful area of coastline around the Gower Peninsula. And I knew that so well. So I would, I connect, I always, when I had to do a research project for for college, I would always tend to uses source material something from the natural world mm-hmm. whether it was a fern growing on the common or rocks or water or always some I always referred back to something that I'd seen some living thing or some some natural object and Though I later became, well, I became very interested in abstraction. I was very interested in deriving the abstraction from natural forms. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't really completely answer the question, but yes, glass (laughs) glass? was. Glass was the the, the important other thing that I think about glass is, yes, it's a wonderful medium, it also is the perfect medium for um, uplifting people. I mean, since medieval times, and when I traveled between school and university, I traveled in um, Europe and North Africa and the Middle East, but I I mean in those days they didn't use the term gap year, but that's what it was. Um, and I had been absolutely entranced by the cathedrals, by Chartres and Saint-Chapelle and Notre-Dame and also amazing mosques in Istanbul. And But architecture really, really, really interested me. But And I saw the Chagall windows in Jerusalem and was astonished by them in the Hadassah Hospital um, chapel, but it never occurred to me until I actually started doing the course in Swansea that I could make windows myself. Mm. Um, so there was this, I guess that was, I found that um, the effect of glass in architecture absolutely ravishing.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'd like to get on to talk about individual artworks, individual pieces that you've you've completed and there are very significant ones. Um, But in general, what's your approach to how you intend to make people feel when they experience your work?
1: I I try to, and this is is an elusive thing, but I try to give a sense of place Mm. in some way that people can connect with, with the experience of being in a particular place, As distinct from other places. So that's one of the things. Mm -hmm. I hope the windows and the sculpture that I make, I really want it to be uplifting. Mm -hmm. I want people to perhaps step... It's, It's too much to ask people to do this all the time. But, you know, I've done quite a lot of work in hospitals and I love the fact that maybe that's, you know, when someone comes in, oh, they're going to be worried, maybe, or they're going to be concerned about one of their relatives. But if if you create an uplifting space that people enter, then, then maybe for a moment they might, that sort of weariness, that that sort of, discomfort might leave them that they're somehow it's difficult to say really Mm. I mean it sounds sort of highfalutin but I'd like to feel that that it's perhaps generates a different state of consciousness if they give the work attention
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well let's take a couple of examples let's start off with the Sheffield Cathedral lantern uh, because I thought when I I heard that it was a lantern. I thought it was, you know, something that you could physically pick up and carry around or something like that, or a lantern, a light in a church. But it's actually the light of the of the cathedral. It's a huge dome of light, like a skylight. Perhaps yes. you could, you know, explore what it was that you were creating there.
1: Yes, that was a really interesting and wonderful commission Um I was lucky enough to have very deep, interesting conversations with Michael Sadgrove. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it's something like the Very Reverend Michael Sadgrove that I'm. But um, he was then provost at Sheffield Cathedral, and then went on to become the dean, and then he went on to become the dean of Durham. And um, in 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 designing this the lantern so i had the opportunity to really talk to him about his ideas about what what the lantern needed to convey and he saw it as a crossroads because there was a, a breakfast program in sheffield cathedral for people who were homeless or people who were in in need, and they would enter by um, the main door and then cross over to go down and into the crypt and into the breakfast program and to be given a hot breakfast and other kinds of support. Um, So they would then cross over the the main nave, the liturgical pathway up to the altar. So they'd just cross it, cross over it. And so that crossroads was was to be emphasised, mm. um, and also the fact that it was there was a seed, there was something growing, there was something that almost imperceptible that you had to that you had to nurture. These are the kinds of ideas we talked about, and. Though it is really quite, an, they're quite abstract windows. They are rooted in those, those ideas of the cross and of um, the sign of. There is this what in the upper part. Um, I'm always really interested in the quality of light in the space, so I used the upper part of the lantern. Um, with the, where the windows are vertical, like normal windows, um, that was made in in my studio in Swansea with people, with other people helping me. Um, and that was made in French glass, which is transparent, and I used two layers and, and etched it, so I knew that the light would pass through, and fall at certain times on the altar from there when it's sort of careening, the light is careening through. The the lower panels, which are triangular in form, I think, um, I used German glass there because that, um, I wanted to use a more opal glass that was more diffuse so it held the light and held the imagery. So I, I sort of was playing with light. And I did the acid etching pretty much myself on the upper areas and the lower parts were made in Germany by a German studio. It was What I ultimately wanted again was something that would be uplifting when people entered the cathedral because that's what they, as they walk in, that's what they first see. And I was charmed by the fact that when I went back there um, fairly recently, a few years ago, and they had a class of infants um, in the cathedral and they were getting them to lie on the floor, on the the floor of the cathedral and just look up
0: Hmm.
1: and see the windows.
0: So, so that was,
1: that made me feel very happy
0: yeah i can imagine all those people at the crossroads of their life crossing through the nave and really experiencing something of a a, a shift in consciousness even for a moment because of that work that you've done uh, it really it really would be an uplifting experience i'm sure <laughs> yeah so you had a number of um inspirational conversations Regarding sort of deep conversations on spirituality and consciousness perhaps. And one of them was with Sister Gail Warsello from Green Mountain Monastery. And um, would you like to tell us what what emerged from that?
1: I I think Sister Gail is a liturgical genius. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, all the sisters in Green Mountain Monastery, had an influence on me because I was so t- delighted by visiting um, there. Um, the conversations with Sister Gail were were really about the the theme of the windows that they were that the Mount Monastery was commissioning from me, mm-hmm. four windows, and they were to be for the corridor that might yet be built, which would connect the main part of the monastery, which was built in an old farmhouse, um, connected with a new chapel, which, again, hasn't been built yet, but it was going to be the cosmic corridor Mm. leading to the chapel. So the windows were referred to as the cosmic windows, four cosmic windows, and in order to design them, I went over to the state, went down to Vermont and stayed in the monastery, stayed there for a week and then carried on designing them afterwards when I came back to Wales. Sister Gail pointed me towards reading Thomas Berry. Where I stayed in the hermitage, which was a small a small house separate from the monastery which the sisters had built themselves out of straw bales and then you know clad in plaster and with wood and they were helped but it was just a wonderful it was a wonderful place to do a retreat and just just work on the ideas that that we I had discussed with sister Gail and the other nuns um within that hermitage there were all the books written by Thomas Berry and books written about Thomas Berry so I would paint during the day and read at night in the evening and discuss them discuss the ideas with with the nuns the main ideas were I don't know how many I don't know whether your listeners are are familiar with The writing of Thomas Berry, they probably are. But um, the universe story that he wrote with Brian Swim was the main text that I that I read avidly. Um, So the themes of the windows are the first one, is what in the text is called the primal flaring forth. So it's the moment, the moment before history starts, what we would call the Big Bang. Um the second the second window is the birth of the galaxies and the stars. The third window is the development of life on Earth. And then the fourth window is our f- future in the Echozoic era. So quite huge things <laughs> yeah quite huge things to try and convey mm. so for instance in the with the future I found that the last window I found that particularly difficult at first and that was when I was already back in Wales and sister Gail and I had some very um very interesting conversations by Skype. And I asked her how she saw the future. And she said, as a continual blossoming, Mm. in that you have knots of difficulty and knots of pain and difficulties that have to be worked through, but if they can be worked through with everyone, actually relating to each other as human beings, and in relation to the natural world, then there is from the difficulty, something grows, something blossoms. Again, there can be times of pain and difficulty and perhaps a shrinking in of all the possibilities, but then from those knots of difficulty again through somehow creating a harmony in our relationships with each other as humans and also in our relationships with the natural world. Then something again will emerge from that.
0: And in that, she's picking up probably in the, the thinking of Thomas Berry, but also Théa de Chardin. Uh, exactly, the yes. continuing evolution, yes. and we are part of it, and our our uh, this web that binds us all, the noosphere, um, that that and that's the future. And so that must have been incredibly difficult to put into a stained glass window.
1: Yes, and <laughs> it, it was a huge challenge, and. The only thing I can do in a situation like that is perhaps try to put my ego aside. You know, as artists, we all have big egos. Um, and just see what comes out. You know, just just in the end, perhaps listen and look and almost witness what comes out. So what I tend to do is paint... Um, with watercolors on large pieces of stretched watercolour paper. Mm -hmm. And I might do lots and lots of these and then pick one of them, or I might pick certain elements and play with it. But what I have to do is somehow be in a state of receptivity. So I was very lucky in that I was able to, to do the design work. First, the first two windows were actually just came out of me in a rush in that first week. Um, that I stayed in in the Hermitage at Green Mountain Monastery. And then after that, the Earth and Life took a lot of research and trips to the British Museum and the Natural History Museum and to Swansea University to look at cyanobacteria and to the Ice Age art exhibition, et cetera. So a lot of research, but with the with the future, with the fourth window, the Echo Zarek era, um, all I could do was just work and see what came out and then almost like a surrender in a way. Mm. That's a funny thing to say, but it was almost like that. I had to sort of, yes.
0: Well, these, these windows were eventually unveiled on the 1st of June 2019, which was a very important occasion at Green Mountain Monastery. It was the 10th anniversary of Thomas Berry's death and the 20th anniversary of the monastery itself. And so um, it must have been a tremendous occasion to, to be there for that at this unveiling, such a significant moment.
1: It was It was absolutely, I feel as if it was... Like one of the peak experiences of my life, in a way, because I felt so honoured and so so delight. And I was very nervous you know, because we actually did unveil them one by one. You know, one of the sisters would would step up with me to to take down the cloth, and there was such a a wonderful gathering of people. I think there was about. I don't know, 150 people maybe, I'm not sure. And they, many of them knew Thomas Berry. So the previous evening we'd had a lecture about, uh, we had a talk about his his life and many people stood up and talked about, reminisced about knowing Thomas Berry. And so I learned so much and I felt very humbled and very um, quite nervous really that how i wasn't sure how they would be received because in fact i'd finished the windows in the summer of of 2018 and sister gail had this wonderful idea that to put them in the great room mm-hmm. which meant that many more people could see them you know at one time and it was the perfect it was the perfect place to unveil them in. So that's where they are now. And it was just a completely wonderful experience that they were so well received and that there were so many wonderful people there to witness that. Mm. And of course, to celebrate Thomas Berry's life and to walk afterwards um, to his grave and we had music we had a beautiful choir singing and then um, musicians playing and a lot of very very heartfelt words were spoken as i said i think sister gail is a liturgical genius (laughs) (laughs) she created such a such a wonderful atmosphere and it was the whole weekend was very special for for all of the people who attended. Mm. And we had walks out into the woods with um young experts who were interested in the the botany and everything that were able to talk to us about everything that was growing there. And we had Qigong sessions and it was it was just wonderful.
0: Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned that Thomas Berry is buried at that monastery where these four windows now are. And he was the one who did so much revealing the universe story to us as a story. And in your four windows, you've captured something that I I, I imagine he would he would have loved to have seen them. He must have he must have been smiling over you that day.
1: <laughs> well, and I would have I would have loved to I've met him, Mm. Um, but, you know, in a way I almost feel as if I have now. Um,
0: I read somewhere that you spent a lot of time, particularly on this project, and that when it was completed, you said that you could die happy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. I spent about, I think I was commissioned originally in 2013, and then they were, windows were actually finished in 2018, I could take my time because normally you're given a deadline and uh, I was beginning to feel that I'd spent so long that I was surprised that there was no one <laughs> hurrying me up <laughs> because normally I, I always, you know, I always stick. If I'm given a deadline, I deliver to that deadline. But um, they seemed almost, um, the sisters seemed almost surprised that I'd finished when <laughs> I finish. <laughs> but, you know, they arrived, when they arrived, there was still snow on the ground, and Sister Army was wanting to imagine she could pick the crate up herself, which, of course, she couldn't. <laughs> but um, it's been a, a great pleasure to get to know everyone at Green Mountain Monastery, and I feel it's enriched my life, and... I don't feel as if it's the end of the story now, though I jokingly said, well, I could die happily. Yeah. And that's true. Um <laughs> I do feel as if um, that it's given me a way of thinking about meditation and the relationship with the natural world. And I guess it was always in me, but it somehow gives it more more purpose, more structure. Mm-hmm. Um
0: I'm just thinking of all all the tremendous works that you've done all around the world and and they're all very high profile works in public places and and they're all very beautiful and and yet it seems like this project had a really special place in your heart. Yes well I've done I have to say that
1: every commission I do I really really get into it so mm. I really um so I always sort of live live it. Um, I have done many larger projects, um, which at the time were very important to me and still are. All the windows, windows that I made for um, the National Shrine of Wales for the Roman Catholic Church in Cardigan
0: mm. were
1: very important to me. They also were a step on in my education, if you like, very often I get the, you know, most of my commissions I have to compete for. Mm. Not all of them. Sometimes people just say, you know, we really love what you do and we would like to commission you. But very often it's, I have to go through the commissioning, uh, through the competition process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I feel I get the ones that that are right for me and then I put myself totally into them um and I feel that that with the windows in Green Mountain Monastery something very special happened they're quite small compared to (laughs) to the the big commissions that I've done for hospitals and the sculpture work in public places and a lot of the work that I did from about the 90s on was often produced by screen printing um, that was done in a different studio, probably the best screen printing on glass studio in the world. And also I worked with, with steel fabricators to make sculpture and all this has been incredibly engaging and absorbing and wonderful. But those windows for Green Mountain Monastery were small enough, just three foot by four each one that I could make them myself. I basically, made them in this house that I'm talking to you from in, in um, sketty in Swansea. And I could use mouth blown glass, um, which I'd been collecting over decades from when I was first, when I first went to Germany to buy glass in oh, about 75, 74, 75, and actually then went to France to buy the mouth blown glass made in the antique method there. So went to the factories and I would always buy what I needed for a commission, but perhaps buy a little bit extra just in case something was broken in the future. And so I had this store of wonderful sheets of glass and they were down in the basement and I was able to, to bring up the sheets and look at them against the light and use Particular areas that I needed, um, I wasn't didn't hesitate to cut into a great big sheet if I needed one little piece of it. But so it was that relationship with the glass, that relationship with the light here, and the relationship, yes, with the natural world, and with Green Mountain Monastery.
0: Mm.
1: It all made it very special.
0: Mm. Yeah, because you've done. Some extraordinary, really huge pieces, like the um, I'm thinking of the, the razor shells. Um, yes. And yes. again, yeah. that's the connection with the natural world, and also the the yeah. ality of the taper, the the windows there, the flowers of the Virgin Mary. They're very beautiful um, flowers, <laughs> you know. Again, connecting with the natural world. So there's something about It seems to me there's something um, really evocative and and that's being expressed that perhaps relates back to what you were saying earlier about your childhood and seeing spirit in everything.
1: Yes, I think you're right. And I think that just because you, I knew you were going to ask me that question, I I had to think about it. (laughs) Um, I think Sister Bernadette said that one of the reasons they chose me to chose me to to do the windows where they ex- were excited at the idea of commissioning me was because they saw on my website um a piece called Quatrefoil Fidelius which is actually a sculpture that is mostly in steel with some glass in it um and that is in Bradford mm-hmm. that's a uh, that's a city in England and Delius was a composer who, um, he grew up in Bradford, but he left as a young man and he hardly returned. But he he spent the last part of his life in France. And he, you know, he would write music like to hear the first cuckoo in spring or um, he... He was very a very ill man and he had menuensis to help him towards the end of his life. But he remember he, he was incredibly um receptive to the elements such as the sun on his face and mm-hmm. the, the birds singing. So I guess I tend to pick, or maybe it's picked for me, commissions in which I can delve back into some natural phenomena or some natural form to, well, I, I want not say inspiration, but that always sounds a bit highfalutin. Mm-hmm. But then when you break it down, inspiration is, you know, to do with breathing. Mm-hmm. And the Welsh word for for breath is usprid which also means spirit. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's all interconnected, isn't it?
0: Mm. Do you ever receive feedback from, from people who've experienced your artwork and have have said to you something about how it's opened a doorway for them to this spirit?
1: You know, the something that always, when I was studying in Swansea years ago, um, And then later I went back to Swansea to do an MA in glass in about 2010. But when in my first time round, um, when I was studying in the glass course, I became very interested in the writing of um, Abbotsuga of Saint Denis. And he talked about the anagogical aspect of um, stained glass. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, that... Of course, this was at a time when the cathedrals built. Many people couldn't read or write, but the the stained glass windows would be the Biblia pauperum, the the Bible of the people. And you know, they would tell stories um, that could be read, almost like comic books, really. You know, um, but they so they. So the combination of them being the people who being able to... And they, these would, would be people who weren't used to television sets or the kind of color that we see in advertising and clothes so much. And, but they would be used to the natural world.
0: Mm.
1: And they they would be... I mean, Abatsuka spoke about it as being, being an uplifting experience and leading people closer to God by, obs- by really looking at the, the stained glass windows. And I certainly, when I've been to Chartres and walked around and, and really, really looked at those windows, that's what they've, they've done for me. They've, they've put me into somehow put me into a different state of consciousness. So if it does work, if my windows do work for other people in that way, I would be very, very touched and moved. Mm. But I don't think it's for me to say that that is necessarily going to happen. I think it depends upon so many circumstances and on the individual.
0: Yeah, and I suppose there's also the other dimension of your work in this case with the the full, um, the, the creation windows. They're not the creation windows, they're the cosmic windows, um, in that they tell a story uh, and it's a story that we are the first generation of humans to know about and we don't know this story particularly well perhaps and we need to... Uh, we need to learn it better and absorb it all. And so I suppose there's an opportunity there in those windows in particular.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I was actually thinking now that um, I should, I guess I'm talking to you or just, you know, our communication in the last month or so. I was thinking that I should get out the, um, the cartoon, which is the working drawing. Or in this case, the cartoons that I made for the windows, for the for the cosmic windows, I, I made as full colour cartoons that were printed out from the designs. So I actually have a full scale colour rendering, a printed rendering in good quality of of the windows and. Um, now that I don't have one, you know, over the years, I would have one in this room up against the light on a, an easel. As I'd finish one, I'd put it up and then be working on the next one. Um, I was thinking I should get out the cartoons and put, perhaps put the future up and mm. reflect on that mm-hmm. and see what it does for me personally. Because at a certain point, you, you don't feel as subjectively involved with something like that it's almost as if it's you know it's as if you've had a baby and they've grown into a child and you know they're an adult and of course you're still connected but they're their own person (laughs) and you can see them in a different way
0: yeah uh that would be A wonderful way to sort of take in the reality of who we are as human beings. We need these constant reminders, it seems, to come back to our story. and um, I know that you did a lot of research for the third window, Earth and Life. Yes. And I was wondering if that was also coming back to your childhood, um, your connection with the natural world, feeling you into that window somehow.
1: Yes, I think so. Um, When I, when I live up in North Wales in the cottage there, um, which I did while I was designing these, that window, except I'd have forays coming down to Swansea and talking to experts and going to museums, but I would draw things, you know, as they suddenly occurred to me. So, for instance, I think there's a drawing of a fern within it as being one of the early plant forms. Um, So I would just suddenly, you know, my eye would be taken by something and I would draw it. Um, in In the case of the... There's, a, there's the lion man appears in the um in that particular window which is which I saw at the ice age art exhibition which which was in the um in the British Museum so I drew these amazing um these amazing little sculptures and forms that were were made by but made by human hand, something like thirty-seven thousand years ago, mm. um, you know, were found in caves in Germany. And I think there's a natural, there's a natural urge in us as children to make things. And I think there's a natural, a natural connection if you if you give children the opportunity to spend. I suppose it's difficult to say again, I'm generalizing, and I can only really speak for myself, but um, I was, yes, I'm incredibly grateful for that wonderful upbringing of spending time, time with animals and plants and with the elements and not having to put them to any use, you know, just mm-hmm. being there. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think yes. I do in the, in looking at in looking at what to choose for earth and life because you know there's so much you could possibly chosen so I I played I was quite cavalier with terms of scale small things become big like cyanobacteria Mm -hmm. and big things like the ichthyosaur that was found by um found by a lady on the Dorset coast, and she hacked away at um, the rocks and found these remains of these ecthyosaurs, which were the same time as the dinosaurs. So I sort of also, I think this, I also have this love of history and prehistory and the fact that the rocks, the rocks on the cliffs, and the caves have have they they tell their own stories, um, and they have to be listened to too.
0: I'm curious about what's ahead for you in your future, Amber. So um, in terms <laughs> yeah. of art, but also, I believe you might be writing a book one of these days.
1: Oh yes. Okay. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't shouldn't have let that out of the bag. <laughs> i'm looking um, forward to it (laughs) i think now i have to don't i um no actually as a kid i was i loved writing i guess it's because of the kind of schooling that i had where um if you were bright and in the top stream or whatever you you didn't you you were expected to give up on art at a certain point and just concentrate on the reading writing and arithmetic but um I, I always, I, I've always read a huge amount and, um, I might've been, I guess as a teenager, I was probably more skilled at, at writing than I was at art because that was what I'd, um, been most exposed to. Mm. And so it is about time. I, I, um, Yes, I probably should write. I, I, it's not a should, really. It's I will. I shall. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've started making some notes from in preparation. The, the difficulty is knowing, really, who you're writing it for
0: mm.
1: and whether ultimately you just write it for yourself or you whether you write it with an audience in mind. So my inclination at the moment is to just try and pour it all out and then edit it afterwards and see, you know, see who it might be intended for.
0: Yeah. That sounds like a wonderful process to to just get it out there first for yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's difficult for our listeners probably to <laughs> just listen to descriptions of your work. Um, so I know that there are some wonderful places uh, online that people could visit, or if they happen to be in certain places, especially in the UK, they can actually go and see your work, which I haven't done yet. Um, which would be extraordinary but online there's a lovely short documentary about the creation of the of the cosmic windows um, so i re- I really recommend that to everyone are there any other places that you can name now people could see it um,
1: well apart from my website which is just www.amberhiscott.com, I'm not sure whether the link to The little film is actually there yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to be a bit slow about these things, but um, I wrote an article about those windows, which was um, in the Contemporary Glass Society magazine. Mm -hmm. It came out just about, I think, in March. Um, That's the British, that's in Britain.
0: I think the documentary was called Artist in Nine Minutes, Amber Hiscott.
1: There's also a little film about me going down to Paviland Cave in Gower um, mm. and just doing a couple of drawings That basically it just shows the landscape of South Gower, a particular a cave where um, there has been inhabitation. habitation well there was there were bones found. Um, you have to look it up really. It, it was called the Red Lady of Paviland, I think is the, mm. the name of the film. Or no, maybe drawn to Paviland, drawn to Paviland, I think.
0: Yeah, and certainly um, a number of the cathedrals and churches have works, the works are sort of documented as part of their websites as well.
1: Okay, well, that's good to know. Yeah. (laughs) So, presumably, Sheffield Cathedral Lantern would be on that.
0: Anyhow, I'd better let you take off and enjoy your day, Amber. <laughs> but I yes, do it's first of
1: May, you know, this oh, is a special yes. time in the Beltan calendar, you know, in the mm. sort of pagan mm-hmm. in the pagan world, the first of May was considered to be a very important day. And my my mother was actually um she was queen of she was the May Queen when she was a teenager in Montford in Essex. So
0: <laughs> so I think I'll honour her today. Oh, yeah. I'd love to hear more about all of that too. That's another conversation another day. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyhow, Amber, thank you so much for your time, but especially thank you for the, the beauty that you express through your artwork for the world and, and the connection with everything that is spirit that you are expressing <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such
1: a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Yeah, Thank you. Thresholds podcast is part of a suite of resources on integral ecology produced by the Institute of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea. For more information about our work, please visit www.ismapng.org.au. I'm Sally Neves coming to you from Wiradjuri country in the central west of New South Wales, Australia.